Hello, and welcome to the Indie Fantasy Book Club. I'm Orland. And I'm Kate. And we're excited to speak with you today on The Blade of Ghosts, The Lost Sect. <laughs> it is ghosts. Okay, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you and the author probably about that title. Okay. I think it's a good title. It's just hard to say. It is hard to say. It looks really good on the page, though. It does. Okay. Great cover art. Kate. Yes. Unrelated question for you. If you could have control of any element and use it as you willed, what element would you choose? And I'm not talking like only Avatar Airbender elements. I'm talking really any concept like light, shadow, etc. Okay, do I have to spend time in this element to learn how to use it? Yes. So like, would I be able to withstand, I mean, would I be able to live learning the fire element for example because it seems painful like, i mean i'm not asking you to sit in a fire you could sit next to a fire okay hold on what element would i want i think i would probably pick water depending on what sort of things accompany it in the book they do have healing properties because of water and i know the like the flow of blood which seems very useful but their manipulation of ice seemed both cold and unwieldy, so I don't know. Air, maybe? Air air might be really good, because... I feel like, I, I feel like you've already chosen. No, 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 no. That was me reasoning. Okay. Oh, okay. So air would be really good, because flying, obviously, would be awesome. And if you can mani manipulate air currents such that you can fly and never have to worry about falling off of high buildings, that's going to increase both your travel and your ability to do like stuff like window cleaning professionally plus if you wanted to fight you could just remove the air from a room easy peasy that's very airy of you also studying air is going to be easy in almost any environment no you're gonna to have to go live on some wasteland tundra where the wind blows really hard all right thank you for that question it made me do some thinking thoughts all right orland random question for you if you could shadow mimic an animal or a bit of nature for fighting what would it be I think it depends on how I'm supposed to use it. If I'm looking for wide-scale destruction, obviously meteor. Obviously meteor. You're completely right. That would be the thing to do. But if I was going for something more subtle and like a one-on-one -on -one or small-scale fight, I thought about this as well due to, you know, our friend. And it's really hard to decide. I think I would actually go with a tail. Oh, really? Yeah, really. Like... I understand if you don't know how to use it, it'd be very hard to use in battle, but I feel like if you got good at using it, it could be quite the trump card, right? Because who would expect you to suddenly have a tail <laughs> whipping towards their face or something? See, that was the one thing that in the book, I had a hard time imagining it with that, with like a straight face. I'm like, oh, so you're going to just attack him with a, with a, an extension of your butt. You're going to, you're going to stop right now and you're just going to, what, back up towards him? Have you not Or is it read... really long and like a scorpion? And I was like, oh, that's just. So, like, I mean, I like, guess think was... about all the creatures that use their tails effectively in battle. Scorpions being a good example. Like the only Dragons. Example. Dragons are fake. <laughs> but they have We're other... in a fantasy book club. <laughs> For the sake of the book club, I can assume it's a okay, okay, okay. valid premise. But really, would that be your only... You, you only get one. You're going to choose a butt extension. <laughs> well, see, here's my thought process, right? Wings, for instance. Super useful. Completely impractical. There's no way you'd be able to lift yourself off the ground. 
When he was flapping his arms, I was worried. But you don't always have to flap. You glide somewhere. I'm like, okay, I, I could see that. Gliding. Gliding. Not super useful in a fight, unless you're trying to jump from one building to another, which begs a host of other questions. Batman. Yeah, he uses his wings. <laughs> to glide in To there. glide to another place. Yeah, he glides in there. So I, I would say... I, I would say it's great for setting up the battle or fleeing the battle. I would not say it's useful for fighting the battle. Do you see fair. the difference? Okay, I can see that. You don't want big, vicious, like, claws? I mean, if I'm fighting with a sword or other weapon, such as a spear or, you know, any other weapon, I feel like the claws would lose a lot of their efficacy. I could see you saying, I need giant spider arms. Like Yaren in Cradle. If you're if you're looking for extra appendages, because then at least they're facing the right direction. Tails are going backwards. So in my head, it's just... I'm telling you, you're completely, completely missing the awesomeness of the tail. I am. I am. You're losing out on all that utility, I'm telling okay. you. It's like having an extra hand on your back. <laughs> no, because tails don't have hands. So they can wrap and maneuver things. Depending on the tail and depending on how they use it. But just look at how effective monkey's tails are. I've, I feel like we've digressed. But what we should talk about now, now that we know that shadow tails are awesome. Nope, not nope. giving it to me. That's okay. Oh, I understand. I understand. We want to define a few terms, though, because um, as these questions are related to Blade of Ghosts, we want to talk a little bit about cultivation and some terminology, um, some of which is specific to this book and some of which is more specific to cultivation novels, just for any of our listeners who are not familiar with the genre. Yeah, so let's start off with cultivation. What does cultivation, when you find that word in novels, mean? Typically it means that you're able to pull in uh, power or energy from the world around you and internalize it and use it. As you collect more energy, you advance through cultivation and you reach different stages with that, which have different benefits. Um, so a really good example is when you first start off, a lot of cultivation novels will call it the energy gathering stage because you're essentially mortal. Well, you are mortal. <laughs> and you're just initially pulling in energy from the surroundings. And sometimes this energy is just um, unspecialized key or energy of the heavens and earth. And in other novels, it's much more specialized, like in the Cradle series, where it's attuned to certain elements or other characteristics. Key is more in line with uh, Eastern fantasy, which is really where cultivation comes from. So often in cultivation, they have something called a core. Typically, um, depending on the steps of cultivation that the author chooses, that core can be something you're born with, or that core is something that you have to develop as you progress in your cultivation. It really is highly dependent upon the author. Often in cultivation novels, they have very structured sets of levels that humans pass through as they advance. Yeah. Um, so pulling from a couple different examples, um, for instance, with the Cradle series, you have the different stages corresponding to how your internal energy or mandra interacts with your body and the changes that undercome from incorporating mandra. In some of the other books I've read, uh, such as Defiance of the Fall, as you gain energy and literally level up in that particular novel, you end up getting different 
facets or your body changes in certain ways. Initially, you're just gathering energy and then ultimately you have to open up um, nodes within your body and then you form a core and it continues along that path as you add more and more through the different stages. So what would you say the overall structure of a cultivation novel looks like? I'd say there's kind of three themes that are very typical. Um, the first one is might makes right. If you're the strongest person around, you make the rules. Bottom line, which is very strange from a Western philosophical standpoint, uh, but makes a lot of sense in a cultivation because it's hard to enforce rules when someone's so much stronger and essentially unbeatable. Um, the second one is the character start often starts off weak or starts off as being a mortal, essentially having no cultivation. And then as they progress along their story, they are able to grow more powerful and to experience new things. And it's really a story watching them grow stronger and overcome the enemies that they either gain or create along their path. But I would say that there's definitely an emotional component as well. You'll see in a lot of cultivation novels that they have to overcome what are called demons of the heart. Oh. And so that is an essential part of cultivation. So I wouldn't say it's purely physical. I would say that there's definitely a significant mental or emotional component to it as well. So mastering your mind, mastering your body, mastering your soul. One thing I want to dive in or define rather before we dive into Jason's story is their concept of energy. They call it anima mm. um, instead of one of the other various names that we've given it today. And so it's the same concept, just tailored towards this author's preference. All right. Thank you. Okay. So today. Oh, one other thing. I also wanted to applaud Kate on the wonderful synopsis she's about to give. I was very impressed with when I saw her outline with how thorough she's been. So okay, so, with that, I'll go ahead and stop talking. So now. yeah, buckle in, guys. This is quite the story. I'm just going to, we're just going to blaze right through it. So bear with me. Jason and his tribe live in a valley and have been there for generations because the gods threw them down there in punishment for some sort of original sin. Their people led by one Echo, the Endless, a prophet, living aloof in a mountain temple, cultivate shadows and therefore need darkness to grow their powers. But here's the kicker. There are truly terrible flying monsters called Void that inhabit the deep and can come out at night. And when she says the deep, she is referencing a series of caves. Mm, yeah, it's true. There's a, a network of caves within their valley, Basically, the valley seems very unsafe. Would you agree? Agreed. <laughs> the valley seems very unsafe. Like, maybe you wouldn't want a vacation there. So, Jason is a past a past finder, and that is a lower caste of the tribe, and somebody who crawls around ruins and tunnels, looking for relics like swords and weapons for the soldiers to use to fight. Jason sees his best friend, Yen, a warrior and daughter of the commander, off at the gate to what is basically the underworld. Jason would give anything to be part of the shadow front, elite warriors like Yen, but can't because his cultivation core won't form. He sticks around at the gate after Yen leaves, trying to meditate and build a core, and because of this, and an incredible natural sensing ability, he is the first one to notice an incursion of the void. These void are stronger and smarter, but because of Jason's early warning, the warriors are able to fight them off. Later, working as a pathfinder, Jason uses the same sensing ability to find relics in the tunnel, and he finds more than just relics. 
His sensing has grown so strong that he can hear the echoes of the ancient peoples whose lives had imprinted on the shadows. Here's the crossroads. Through sensing the past, Jason can learn cultivation and battle techniques and fulfill his lifelong ambition of joining the shadow front. But Echo the Endless has proclaimed the shadow techniques dark shade and off limits. Jason's ambitions lead him to learn and master these ancient forbidden techniques, which is all well and good until someone sees him. Feljax, a warrior with a long-term grudge against Jason, challenges him to an honor duel in front of the tribe. To save his own life, Jason pulls out all the stops and uses his forbidden magic to defeat Feljax. Because of this, Jason is exiled to the deep. What would be a death sentence, except his sensing has progressed so far that he can follow the ancients through the labyrinth right to where his friend Yen and her company have been trapped at the tunnel's exit by an unnatural block of ice. Monsters surround them and all hope is lost until Jason digs deeper into the ancient techniques and summons a shadow form of dragonfire and melts the ice. Jason, Yen, and the remaining warriors find themselves in another valley inhabited by people with a different magic and belief system, which brings up a whole new series of questions. Who is the prophet Echo the Endless, really? Where did the void monsters come from? But we can't spend much time pondering because a fearsome dragon and the void monsters are on their way to destroy Jason's home valley. They follow the dragon through an underground river, have an epic battle inside their valley, and Jason pieces a few bits of information together and decides to pay a visit to Echo the Endless in her mountain temple. While there, he learns some startling truths about the way the world works and manages to sick the void on the evil and crazy Echo. And then he does not kiss the girl. He's young. Is he, though? I thought he was like 18. No, he's like 15 or 16. He's like 15 or 16? I think so. I could be wrong. That's plenty old to kiss a girl. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Okay. Basically, at the end there, a lot happens altogether, and my my hand was cramping up from writing the synopsis, so I got a little bit less detailed. And I also knew that my voice was going to be running ragged, so I... That's I okay. Back a That's a bit. mystery. There, you guys should, if you haven't read the book, I recommend that you do read the book. It was very fun. Recommendations come at the end. <laughs> okay, Orlin, what do you think? Overall impressions? I really enjoyed the book. I did. There was... <laughs> I mean, that's that's my yeah, overall well, like, impression. I, I really yeah, enjoyed okay, it. Let's move on. It was interesting. It caught my attention. There were parts that were kind of repetitive, but I feel like that's very common in cultivation novels, so I wasn't overly distraught over it. I know some people were less pleased with that, um, but overall, I would say I quite enjoyed the book. How about you, Kate? I liked it. Um, it. At the beginning, it was a little bit slow. Like The first couple chapters were heavy with the action, but didn't have the emotional like core that I feel like I need to really enjoy mm-hmm. action. But s- s- shortly after, the world was so interesting, the way they built it up. Um, the the tunnels full of ancient ruins that they crawl through but is, are not impressed with were so interesting of a mystery for me. The whole way they had the society built up, very broken, very interesting. We've labeled this a cultivation novel because he does pull in anima and builds a core and cycles things and uses magic. But for me, that was more of a more of a setting thing than a drive of the story, which was good and bad. I like a good cultivation novel, and I kind of wish that the author had had more page time devoted to like some nitty gritty stuff. But 
That said, the part that was in the foreground of the character's thoughts and of the plot was the mystery of who is Echo? What is happening outside of this valley? And are they going to make it out alive? Were all so interesting to drive me through the story that I, I would have... Mm, that it could have worked without cultivation, and with cultivation was kind of a plus. But I don't know. I think yeah, it talking about it hit that it a little of, harder. <laughs> agree. Talking about the magic magic system or the cultivation system, really, um, I do agree it was kind of lacking compared to some of the other novels. Um, but I do agree that the mystery more than made up for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that just segues right to the magic system. I would define it as fun but flimsy. Mm. In that, in that. We have a lot of different magics to explore. He uses the different types, shadow, water, it's light, etc. So there's a lot of fun plays on how that affects your sensibilities and belief systems, which I like it when a magic system has a direct effect on philosophy. Um, he advances through multiple levels, but unlike other cultivation novels, those levels aren't really clearly defined. Like, what's the... I, w- I would disagree. I would say that they are clearly defined. I would just say that there's not really barriers between them. Oh, okay. So in a lot of other cultivation novels, as you progress, like forming your core, for instance, is a huge endeavor. Mm-hmm. It often comes after significant preparation. In this one, I felt that, as you mentioned, it's not having that really clear boundary where he very easily goes from being just capable of sensing and but not really able to store the shadow enema to forming his own core and being almost on par with some of the strong commanders. Yeah, exactly. People who have years and years of experience. So to me, I understood why the author did that. Uh Um, And you could definitely say that finding the Therian's shadow memories and being able to learn cultivation from them definitely helped. For sure. And I understand that. Um, but it did feel like the levels weren't really distinct. It was just kind of a hazy, well, you formed a core now, so now you're this. Yeah. And I felt like there wasn't really a good... So talking about the shadow memories, it was interesting how history was imprinted on all the world. So since they were shadow sensors, they could see it in the shadows. And the water sensors could feel everywhere the water had touched. So that was really fun. Um, way to bring history into the present and I thought it was really clever how he used it to learn new things and it and for me it it really it gave me a lot of excitement to like explore cool old ruins like if he can find that here where else are they can we go deeper um so taking that as part of the magic system I thought that was a really cool clever touch he even manages to bring it back to books at a certain point he's like yeah, not everybody can hear the voices of the past through shadows. Some people just have to read them. But that's what the books are, is the echoes of the past. Do you have a favorite bit? Actually, yeah. This conversation on the history and having the shadows or whatever other um, element that the people chose to cultivate carry that history was my favorite bit by far. Mm. I mean, like the mystery was great. Learning the... Well, watching Jason learn how to use his shadow shadows as well was very interesting. But that history I l- absolutely loved. And watching him like 
look back on the Therians. To me, the mystery of the Therians was almost more interesting than that like ongoing mystery in the book that he was trying to solve. Like looking at the civilization, seeing all the things that they were capable of achieving and capable of doing. And like, they're gone. Their civilization was wiped out. But in a way, they've been immortalized through these this ability to pass on their memories through the shadows. And I think that's very cool. That was very cool. My favorite bit, there were multiple points in this book where the tension was stacked on, ratcheted up. Every time that he, Jason, accomplished something, you're like, okay, we get a breather. No, <laughs> no, we do not. And, and I usually have a pretty good sense of like what's coming in a book. But there came a point around the three-quarter marks where I had no clue. I had no clue how it would end. I had no clue how he was going to get out of a situation. And any assumptions I had ended up wrong. And I was so impressed with how he managed to handle that climactic battle. The moment he starts fighting Feljax, until about the ending, was just a non-stop roller coaster. Well, hardly. It was like that part of a roller coaster that goes... <laughs> and takes you right up to the top. And so that was my favorite bit. I was reading it late at night and I read until my eyes hurt. I just wanted to know so badly. So that was that was really well done. Okay, let's talk some philosophy. Oh yeah. This brought up a lot. Yeah, it really did. Uh, so my question, Kate, is would you live a lie and be hated by your society to protect them? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Brutal honesty. Well, here exactly brutal honesty i know myself and you know me i, I do. am not good at lying or untruths i i would you there first of all my poker face would not be good enough there's no way anybody would believe me well in all fairness he didn't lie he told other people to lie in his behalf okay that's fair that's fair but if i had to go around lying i couldn't do it so the people are gonna have to take care of themselves i'm sorry as for could I could I be hated in order to protect my people? Yeah, probably. Orland, would you live a lie to protect your people? Depends on if they're worth protecting. <laughs> to me, right? So that's that's actually something I found kind of odd. That he wanted to protect his people? Yes and no. So like, if you look at who's left, it's not a lot of the soldiers, right? Because a lot of the soldiers died trying to push everybody else. Right. And I know it's a cultivation novel, so might makes right. But I felt like their society was really broken. Oh, for like, sure. If you weren't a warrior, you were basically treated like trash, which I don't feel like is not accurate. But I do feel like even if you aren't capable of, you know, being a warrior and shaping shadows, I do feel like craftsmen especially See? should have a higher should have had a higher status. And I mean, like farmers, I get it. They're super important, but they're very easily discounted okay um which i feel like is unjust but i can understand the rationale why in a cultivation novel i feel very differently about the craftsmen though the ones who make their tools but on the flip side since they can and often do use their shadows to make their weapons because they're more they're more potent maybe they really don't need craftsmen and that's why they treat them like trash so i would agree to a point I, the society is so broken and as I was reading it up and especially in the beginning I'm like this wouldn't happen I mean you look at our richest people and they're if you really boil it down craftsmen business people you know 
they they have a company, they sell a product. Those people are widely respected, or at least they have enough money to buy a certain quantity of respect, right? So I was like, there's no way this would happen in real world, in the real world. Un- okay, you can you can refute that in a second. Um, until we got to the end, when we find out that Echo the Endless has set this up as a trial for her monsters. She has groomed these people to be um, the whetstone, basically, for her sword, right? She wants them running headfirst into these monsters with no fear for their own lives. So she's set up a religion. She set up paranoias and, and superstitions in order to have these people so focused on becoming as strong as they can be and then running basically suicidally through a gate into the darkness. And so there's no way you can have it based off of like a normal like mercantile system. These people have been brainwashed and therefore the society suddenly made sense to me because Echo doesn't care if they're making new weapons. In fact, she has them spending no time making new weapons, which to me was a little foolish. Having them go into the mines and encountering the Therians seemed foolish. She should just be like, Why? mine some ore. It's so simple to just brainwash them and say, you know, if you practice anything those people did, we'll have to kick you out and exile you to the land of the void where you'll be eaten. Yeah, that's true. I feel like that's a pretty effective... And, like, maybe in the beginning the they had enough, like, they could find enough metal where it where it was, like... Well, the crazy thing on that, though, is if you read the end very carefully, you'll notice that this is not the first time they've had people run this experiment. Right, a lot of those other civilizations that they dug through were doing the exact same thing, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And you have to wonder were all those people recycling <laughs> as well? So a sword that they found there, which they thought was ooh, this civilization sword was actually stolen from <laughs> an earlier civilization that yeah. was doing the same tests. It was fun. It like even from the beginning when when they're like, look at this rusty sword, and they pass it around as if it was some sort of like almighty tool but they're carrying it kind of like a status symbol and in case they need it but really they have their shadow weapons Mm -hmm. that was a fun bit of world building for me so his dad gives him a sword that his mom had gifted to his dad so it's gone through a couple of hands but it's emotionally significant and in any other book that weapon would have been like carried around and prized and maybe have like extra stat points or something but he uses it in a fight the very first fight a shadow weapon comes and cleaves it in two, and then he's ended with just the stump of a blade. And that shocked me because I was like, oh, his mom's weapon. This is significant. No, it's cut in half. That was good. that was great. That was a great little... Um... It does beg the question, though, why those other civilizations had weapons. For moments like these, when you're, when you're really tired and you just need something to block. But, and I mean, also the void, the void is getting stronger. That's true. So in the beginning, in the very, very beginning, he was hinting at that. So this was also a good book in that you could tell that he had planned it from the beginning. Mm. Everything is seeded in that first chapter. Agreed. So in the very first chapter, the void comes swimming out of a pool. And he's like, they've never done that before. And from there on, we know that all these commanders who have been able to run multiple missions into the into the Void's territory and come back more or less unscathed with most of their company. Suddenly, everybody's being defeated in like great big piles of dead bodies. 
everybody's being carried off by these flying monsters and they're sneaking up in the were they getting stronger and they could go out in like brighter sunlight or something no what was happening there or they're just smarter or just smarter and could go through water well because at a certain point they're like it was like late afternoon so they could fly at them i was getting tired i don't know i'm not sure but going back to our question i think it's also very interesting like his rationale for it he realizes and understands that his people are unable yeah we went on a tangent yeah That's sorry okay. i forgot i forgot what we we're talking about society okay. <laughs> society i think it's very interesting though and a show of greater understanding by him based off of his interactions with uh, the tribe he met who worked with water enema how he understands that his people can't handle the truth they've been so conditioned that they've lived this lived this way to such an extent that they can't even even fathom the thought of Echo being bad, of Echo not wanting to take care of them. And so him being willing to take the blame upon himself and say, and give a story that puts Echo in a good light, having her die to defend them and protect them as her last act, allows them to move forward and move on. Whereas I think if he, he tried to tell them the truth, they would live in denial, and that could even potentially lead to them shutting down, being unwilling and, or unable to live and to act. You know, I wondered how this would happen. So I I understand where you're coming from and where he's coming from and why he did it. But when he's right, when he's like, we'll just lie to them for a little bit. And as soon as they're ready, we'll tell them. I was like, oh, that's how a lot of bad things start. We're just like, we're just going to lie to protect them for a little bit is, is code for. And this is going to be the prevailing lie that will happen for the next 1,000 years and people will live and die for it. It, I wonder, I wonder sometimes he's because he could handle it. Well, yeah, but if you and Emilian could handle it, and his dad could handle it, and Yen could handle it. So, yeah, Yen, but look at who they are. Yeah, but well, in the very beginning, he says Yen is the most religious of anyone I know, she's the most devout, I think is how he said it. And she, she, yeah, she was a warrior, she lived for honor, she lived for Echo the Endless. She ran there following her father, but mostly she ran in there to protect her people. And she, she was able to handle it. Although she did go to the valley. Yeah, she I went would to the sec- second valley. Yeah, I would say that there's, there's a few key differences between them and a lot of the other people. One, uh, especially for Yen and Jason, they went to the other valley, as you mentioned. But two, um, they're both younger still. And so having a traumatic experience where you go on a mission for Echo, you see your comrades die, you see your father try to kill your best friend. Twice. Twice. Maybe three times. And then you get out and you meet a group of people who aren't suffering, who don't have to go and fight a monster endlessly, who have been told to block off and keep you with the monsters by someone else. I feel like that would be traumatic enough that it would really shake your foundations. And then as you learn more, and as you interact more, you start to realize the pieces. Whereas if you look at Yen's father, he's so set in his ways, he's fully willing and able to deny and reject everything from the other tribe. Everything that they try to t- tell him, everything they try to convey and help him learn, he's willing and able and does reject. Yeah. Yeah, if it were me, I would have to take a census first of the valley. Well, so right now they're in 
in just this period of absolute chaotic disaster, I don't know what they can possibly do to get out of it. Frankly, it's just the biggest mess. I think they're all going to die. I don't think it matters. They're all going to die. Well, the void are gone. For now. Well, they drowned them. Some of them. Reread that ending. Some of them fly off to, like, regroup after their friends get pummeled into the ground. Maybe. But they still have some members of the shadow front of their warriors, so I wouldn't be overly concerned. They have, like, fell jacks. No, they have Yen and... But what uh, I'm saying is they have, like, practically nobody. They do have a lot of craftsmen. But, like, if it were me, I would just say, listen, we're going to... We're going to just talk to everybody, sit them down, and just baby steps them and say, first of all, Echo's dead, which is true. Not great situation, but she did leave us a couple of lasting pointers, which is um, we're allowed to go up now. Yay. I would say that first. We're allowed to go up topside. Yay. I think there would be a lot of pushback. I don't think, I think a lot of people would be unwilling or unable to do so. But we'll see how the author carries it out in this Second leave book. them to die <laughs> whatever no okay <clears throat> so um there were a couple points i found interesting in the book one his friend jason's friend emilian sits him down and says listen i'm worried that your like crazy ambition is leading you to pick any path any path upward that you could get even if that path is bad so here we we're, here we have a pretty obvious point of that ends justifying the means would, do you think what he did was right to mess with things that he didn't understand and things that his father explicitly warned him against in order to try to protect his people? So full disclaimer, I'm a compulsive rule follower. <laughs> so this was probably not the best question for me. I think it depends a lot on your internal sense of justice. Because how do you define a good path versus a bad path, right? You need some metric to do so. And for Jason, his metric is... I want to be in the shadow front. And so I feel like Emilian has a very valid point. But Jason doesn't have that metric. So for him, I feel like it's good that he has a friend like Emilian who can point out and be like, dude, you're going <laughs> way off our beaten path. And for this book, it was necessary, right? But how would you be able to determine that? I don't know. What was interesting for me in the book was I was with Jason all the way because he was, he he had his moral compass. He was like, well, it doesn't feel bad. They don't feel like bad people until he's fighting Feljacks and he kind of channels this feeling of this crazy monster that lived in a cave where he's fighting. And when he does that, he gets this overwhelming bloodlust and he nearly kills Feljacks even though Feljacks is trying to submit and forfeit the match at which point i said oh it was dark shade <laughs> i thought he echo was right that is bad it warps your mind he's turning into some sort of evil shadow monster what was interesting to me is at that point jason was justifying it instead of saying you're right i was wrong this is clearly dark shade he's like no it was always so good except for that time i nearly killed that kid Except for that point. Everything was so good. <laughs> Do the ends justify the means? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. What worries me, like, if, if my kid's listening to this, listen to your parents. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah. and at the end of the book, when his dad's like, you're right, you're so, you are so right about everything. And look how strong you've become. I'm going to follow what you did. And he tries to do just a bit of the magic that Jason did. And his, his father loses his mind. In the end, Jason leaves his eight-year-old sister in charge of his clearly broken a mentally broken father who's going backwards in time not responding to anything so like but clearly the path requires a bit of tutelage mm-hmm. some careful stepping so anybody else who is trying to do this could have ended up broken and and muttering in the caves so maybe listen to your parents and also he furthered on their apocalypse by doing this stuff he prodded echo who was clearly teetering on an edge into swarming their valley with void she was gonna do that anyways though who knows when it was gonna happen that's true that's true okay yeah so and maybe we're going a bit long but one thing that he brings up is your sense of honor when nobody else is around and jason whose whole life was built on honor and everything he did was for the honor of himself and his family and the valley to an extent and at echo his honor, like, everybody shouted, for Echo. When he's exiled, he's like, and honor is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and honor is meaningless. And now I'm in these dark tunnels and these dark caves. And it doesn't matter if I have honor because I'm alone and my society has rejected me. How do you feel about that as a, as a true or false statement? I think that actually ties in really well to the previous question. Because ultimately your moral compass and your honor should be tied very closely, right? You are honorable by following moral compass and adhering to standards that you've chosen to accept and so i think already he was breaking his original sense of honor right because he was going against the teachings of echo which he allegedly claimed that he would follow and were important to him and so i think his honor his standards that he held himself to was entirely being strong enough to protect his family or protect his people or maybe earn like pride from his family. Yeah, that's actually a better point. Maybe it was an honor that drove him at all. It was pride. It was the honor was like an outward sort of thing, whereas internally what he was looking for was acceptance mm. and, and and having validation from his from his family and friends. I wouldn't say friends. I'd say he didn't have many friends. <laughs> yeah, he didn't Friend. have many friends. But I I do disagree though. I feel like your sense of honor shouldn't disappear when no one's around i feel like that's when it's most important because ultimately you need to be able to trust yourself if you lie to yourself and you can't trust yourself then no matter how good other people think you are you'll always know and the person in the mirror will always know that you're not honorable you're not holding up to the standards that you said you believed in that you adopted as your own all right do you have any reservations about this book um Full disclaimer, I really enjoyed it. So Oh, for sure. So reservations that I have. I would, I would say my biggest reservations um, is that like I enjoyed the mystery, but parts of it felt almost too far fetched, does that make sense? So like the fact like the setup and I mean I knew for a long time that Echo was bad, right? And Page as, one. As You're like, as, we have a prophet who doesn't fight for us and is just praying to the gods. I'm like, oh, that's not going to end well. <laughs> um, that's not. Yeah, so I knew for a while that Echo was bad. And I enjoyed the mystery. But, like, for example, when they're talking, like, 
let me rephrase this. My biggest reservation, and I think it'll probably be resolved as the story continues, but my biggest reservation is that the motivation of the villain seems just so abstract from the story. Who's the villain in your mind? Echo. Okay. So if you think about it, Echo is trying to prepare these monsters for a fight between the Light Guard and the Underworld, which makes sense. But I really feel like it's abstract from the story. Does that make sense? Well, I maybe it makes sense, but I disagree. Um, Echo to me was such an interesting dichotomy because she's a light guard, but she's working with these shadow people to, or using them to create shadow monsters. So she's somebody who thinks of herself as so superior because she comes from a land of light. And all you people scuttling around on the ground in the shadows are these bad people. But here she is making a shadow monster. And she's clearly, she's clearly like deeply sadistic. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, what's inside of her is mostly darkness, as far as I can tell. <laughs> then, then we also learned that she is as much of a prisoner as anybody in that valley. Because she has been sentenced, kind of to run this experiment alone on this mountaintop <laughs> she's gone completely bonkers and she's talking to her random little pets and she's pacing about in her little space and um it was it was great i loved seeing her crazy because when when she first came down as like an abstract some sort of weird like powerful but like emotionally absent person that didn't feel real but as soon as we got to see like this really crazy person up on a hilltop that was great mm -hmm. well so. i will politely disagree fair enough okay i have two reservations the beginning where he repeated over and over and over again i want to be in the shadow guard felt repetitive repeated repetitive that said it re it it really did instill in you he wants to be in the shadow guard so as i found him whiny actually now that you bring that up i'm gonna add that to my reservations i found him whiny at the beginning and very self-centered and towards the end of the book i think he definitely matured mm -hmm. um when he was willing to take the fall and like arrange things for his people i felt like that was a good maturation but at the beginning i found him to be very whiny and self-centered yeah, he was set on his goals, and his goals were frankly stupid. No, no, no. It's not only that he was set on his goals. It was the disdain he looked at other people at the same status as him. Where he was like, oh, everyone here is filthy, and I don't want to be part of this group. Yeah. I felt that was very self-centered and very demeaning to those around him. That's true. Whether or not the society taught him that. Okay. my My second reservation... I loved for so long the relationship between him and Yen, partially because she wasn't there. He was able to talk <laughs> about her in this like glowing terms and he was doing a lot to become more like her, to prove himself to her, to go and be with her. But then they get in the same room and I loved Yen so much because her dialogue is funny. We're in the midst of almost certain death and she is cracking jokes. I'm like, oh, Yen is so perfect. But because they're in the same room and he has opportunities to advance this relationship as well he should because she's not going to find a better girl. 
he doesn't. And it becomes so frustrating to me that at the end of the book, he, well, he leaves his young sister with his girlfriend, but then he leaves this girl with a platonic hug and is totally okay with that. It's just the, the, the romantic ineptitude of this gentleman is so frustrating to me. I can't hardly stand it. In fact, at a certain point, he, she's like, I can't believe you're leaving. He's like, don't worry. Bell Jax is here. And he's, and she's like, I'll throw you off the mountain. And he literally does not know, or possibly kind of knows, but doesn't react to it. His emotional development is so stunted and backwards. He doesn't realize. And this is coming in a time when their population has been greatly reduced by void monsters. They're going to be needed to be, they, they're going to need to do some reproducing pretty soon. And here he is platonically hugging people. Wow. On that note, will you read book two? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can. The ending was so stressful for me. I was hoping something would wrap up. I was hoping that we could end with a sense of, well, at least now they can build their grass huts in peace. But no. But no. Not only are the void monsters not completely dead, we know that there are dragon monsters. Who knows how many there are? Well, if there's one dragon monsters, there must be two dragon monsters. Where did the dragon monster come from? Dragon parents. I'm pretty sure it's a water serpent that breathes fire, but okay. Anyway, not only are the void monsters not wiped out, there and there are probably eggs lying somewhere, but we know that there are the light guard, and he just killed one of the light guard. So almost certainly they're going to be at war with these people. And weirdly, he's marching up there to talk to them. I'm very, very disturbed. In all fairness, the void ate the light guard. <laughs> That's true. But the light guard can, in addition to the light guard being way more powerful just because they've lived longer, because they haven't been trapped in a valley fighting monsters from birth, they have the ability to spy on people through their flying monkey things. And because of that, they have just this leg up. I don't know. I was imagining last night how they could possibly deal with the light guard. And I would imagine you'd have to go stealthy. Because if you call war on them right now, it would be very bad. You would be annihilated. So what I would do is I would talk loudly to all the flying monkey spies. Just like to my friends. Isn't it terrible how our beautiful prophet... Echo the Endless was destroyed by the Void. Oh, it is so terrible. It is a pity that this happened. And then I would say, and I am so hungry. I think I will, I think I, yes, I think I will barbecue that flying monkey. And I would carefully talk like that as I try to reduce the number of flying monkeys in the valley. But basically it's a long shot. I don't know if, it, I don't know if they can pull it off. Wow. <laughs> that was, that was intense. Well, hear me. If they go around shooting the flying monkeys, the mazots. If they how about this? How about this? How about this? Why don't we let the author decide how to resolve this situation? And I will read book two. Yeah. And if I like it, I will tell you whether or not it is too stressful for you to read. That is, as we're gonna have to do that. I mean, those last battles. What was interesting is that most of the deaths in this book, and there were many, did not have like this sort of emotional hit that would cause me crippling pain, like some books do. Um, people were carried off in the darkness and there was a lot of distraction while it was happening and 
it was hard to tell with all the action nothing was like really focused can you think of anybody who died who was really important um his mom that didn't happen in the book though the point is that the that the the deaths did not impact me emotionally but the situation was too stressful for me to 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 consider reading book two in my present state that's fair that's fair um i would say that yeah i would i would definitely i will definitely read book two and don't worry i will tell you whether or not it is too stressful so that you will not have to hurt your sensibilities sound good yeah now we'll go ahead and tell you what book we'll be talking about next week uh, the title is reincarnation threads of fate book one and the author is michael head Jim was thrust back in time, returned to his body at the moment he started cultivating. Anyone else might have given up, but Jim doesn't have that option. He's already made the mistakes that doomed him in, the, in his first life, and he knows what to do to make it right. Jim wants to right the wrongs of the past or future, all while a pair of angry gods torture him through lack of sleep. Weakened to merely a shadow of his former strength, he quickly learns that fighting alone may not be his best option, even though fate seems to like it that way. Luckily for the world, Jim thinks fate is stupid. <laughs> he doesn't care what it wants. Guys, I'm excited to read this book. Let's get to it. Julian Gill, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but thank you for writing a good book. It entertained me all week long. I for sure will be keeping an eye open for book number two. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd like to leave you all with a platonic hug. And remind you to reach out to us on our email, indiefantasybookclub at gmail.com with any recommendations you have for books to read, or if you are an aspiring or recently published, and I mean self-published, author, please feel free to reach out to us if you'd like to have us read through your book. Have a good week. Bye.